celebrating 10 years of podcasting and online ministry, you are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Now join your hosts, Dr. Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, Ronan, Montana, and now West Frankfort, Illinois. <laughs> we, you are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, uh, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. We hope and pray that you're doing well wherever you may be uh, listening to us from. Uh, we are so grateful and thankful that you're along with a, along with us for the ride. Uh, we have a great episode on tap tonight, and we'll get to that in just a few moments. I just want to get you caught up on the latest news about the. Uh, book conversations about heaven it should be dropping here within a couple of weeks uh first of may it should be released through resource publications and so we're excited about that and i hope and pray that it'll be a blessing uh for you so got a lot of great things going on excited about what god's doing but we're excited tonight uh to uh, bring with you a special episode of the bellator christie podcast uh, before before we before we introduce our guest, we want to welcome on our cowboy apologist, Curtis Evelo. Curtis, how you doing, brother? I'm doing good, doing good. Yeah, just trying to get all this stuff ready to go. It should be up uh, up on YouTube here right now, and uh, should be posted. So I think we should just get rolling. Absolutely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we want to welcome a man who is no stranger to the Bellator Christie podcast, uh, the one and only Dr. T.J. Gentry. I, I put my credentials on there, but if T.J. were to put his credentials, I have a feeling it would go all the way across the screen and probably rack back around again. <laughs> T.J. is the man, let me just tell you. <laughs> T.J. is the pastor of First Christian Church in West Frankfort, Illinois. Uh, he is a professor, adjunct professor in many schools, and I think uh, uh, he is over a school there in West Frankfort as well. And so uh, he has written a book. Uh, he is also uh, our uh, one of our assist- associate vice presidents uh, of the Bellator Christian Ministries, uh, one of our publishers, contributors. And uh, so we're just so thankful and grateful to have Dr. T.J. Gentry with us. He's written a book entitled Leaving Calvinism, Finding Grace. So, Dr. TJ, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Brian, thank you, Curtis. Thank you. It's great to be with you, fellas. Uh, always appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> well, now, as, I, as we do normally on the... Uh, good to have you here. Uh, as we normally do for our, our interviews, I'll go ahead and ask the, uh, the primary questions as a, kind of a timekeeper, uh, and so we'll follow up, uh, Curtis will follow up with any additional questions that he may have. So let's jump right into this. Uh, you have a book you've written called Leaving Calvinism, Finding Grace. What led you to write this book? Well, there are a host of, uh, of reasons that play into it. I, I, I'll start to answer that question by saying that <clears throat> a lot of times theology and biography blend um, our life story and, and our theology inform one another and uh, shape one another. Um, I'm certainly not saying by that that there's not an absolute standard by which our theology should be measured, uh, the scripture. But in my case, uh, what prompted me to write this is 
really to tell my story to myself. I, I am the primary audience in this book. I'm talking to myself. It's it's a something of a of a theological catharsis, if you will. I I uh, spent 20 years um, not having been raised as a Calvinist, but spent 20 years in Calvinism, even what would be considered high confessional, strict Calvinism, and there are a series of uh, theological, biblical, philosophical, practical reasons uh, and very personal experiences that led me out of it. And I have found, having been out of it for about 10 years, and by the way, I don't, uh, I, I want to be very clear, I do not think that my Calvinist brothers and sisters are not Christians. Um, that's just not the type of Christian I am now. Um but but uh, as as I've gotten farther from that departure, uh, which was back in in uh, before 2010, uh, timed out real close to when my first son was born in 2008, I've had a number of people ask me because they knew where I was, what I did, well, what what led to it, um, and then I've had a, a number of people come to me and say, uh, I'm considering Calvinism or. I read this about it. What do you think? And finally, it all, I guess, crystallized in a moment when I was uh, I was in a, a THM class at Liberty in a summer session, and this this lady was in the class, and she came to me uh, in tears uh, and and began to tell me about the effect that a particularly nasty expression of Calvinism, not all Calvinists are like this, but this particularly nasty expression of Calvinism had taken its toll on her congregation and had affected one of her children and basically had wedged the family. And she had heard that I had come out of Calvinism and she said, will you please tell your story? Mm. Well, that, that began to to form over the years, and uh, what became a what started as a as a curiosity became a conviction, and finally, I I believe that uh, it was time to tell it, um, and and again, I want to emphasize to tell my story. This book is me talking to me. This is why I became a Calvinist. This is why I left it, and and this is how I have worked through that in my own life. So, very good. You, you, usually, when I talk to myself, people look at me funny, though. <laughs> <laughs> they do me too. That's fair. <laughs> it still happens. <laughs> yeah. I found that the best prayer time is is driving down the road. Of course, you have to have your eyes open while you do that. But uh, you know, people sometimes look at me funny when they see me having this, uh, you know, having this full conversation. But I'm like, I'm, I'm praying to God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I. Uh, it, it, uh, touching on the, the the story side of it in the intro to the to the book, which is by the way uh, provocatively entitled "I'm Not Looking for a Fight." Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, I encourage the reader uh, imagine that that you came to me and said, "Hey, uh, I heard that you were a Calvinist of some sort, and now you're not. Tell me about that." And each of these chapters in the book is is what would it be like if we sat down over coffee and I just told you my story. Basically, what it is. So, uh, those those kind of books, there, TJ, are are probably the the um, most touching and most uh, bringing real, you know, into into the 
into the thought, into the thought process. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I, and I have found that to be true. I mean, frankly, some of the most influential books on me becoming a Calvinist were written by people talking about their journey. The, the one thing that, that motivates me to approach it the way that I am is uh, you can argue with a person's uh, a particular theological position. You can argue with an approach to uh, exegeting a passage. But if I'm just telling you what I thought and why I don't, I'm telling you what I thought and what I don't. You, you can do with it what you want. It's not that I don't care, but I'm not picking a fight with anybody. I'm simply telling my story. Um, and that, that's, the, that's the MO there. It's, and it's interesting that you that you mentioned that um, because la- I mean last week we Curtis and I had a discussion about experiential apologetics and even you can even say experiential theology and 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 yes I, I understand we, we need to take the, an objective approach when we talk about theological and apologetic issues but there's also an aspect where the scripture says things like taste and see that the Lord is good. And when we tell our personal stories about our encounters, you know, with the Lord, there, there's a powerful impact there. And I, and I really, I find it very compelling and very fascinating that you're telling your story about leaving this movement, you know, and finding another uh, in its yeah. place. And, and I think that's a very powerful uh, way to approach the topic. And I don't know that it's been done that much. Uh, I've seen um, different. Uh, uh, I would say uh expressions of that but if if i if i had to say what influenced me with this particular approach to the genre um two very well-known works in the history of christian thought uh, one by by uh, augustine and Mm -hmm. augustine would certainly uh be foundational to calvinism but augustine's confessions oh yeah we draw a lot of theological insight and even precise understanding but that's augustine telling his story and then most of 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 the bellator christie folks that that follow along they're going to have heard of the ontological argument and anselm what we sometimes forget is when anselm put forth the the uh, ontological argument version one and two it's in the proslogion which is a devotional prayer he's telling his faith yep and so the I know, regardless of what the product that I put forward turns out to be, I know I stand in a good tradition doing this. So. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what is the main thesis behind your book? I mean, I think the, the, the title of it gives you kind of a, an idea, but uh, what would you say the, the main point is that you're trying to bring forth in the book? I think uh, it, could, it could be put forth like this. Um for theological, biblical, philosophical, and practical reasons, I found very compelling, motivating, personal, uh, I would even say at times, uh, uh, energy or animus to leave Calvinism because I, I do not think that uh, when, you, when you bring together the theological, the biblical, the philosophical, and the practical, that Calvinism, as I was living it, and, and I think I was a very diligent and faithful high Calvinist, I don't think it works. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a certain pragmatism that drives uh, one of the tests of orthodoxy uh, 
is does it work in real life and if it doesn't you, you've got a question is it orthodox now my Calvinist brothers will say well it works for me and I, I believe that but I believe in my case and, and this is my challenge to my Calvinist brothers is it was working for me because I wasn't consistent with the system but if I was consistent with it it left me with a God that I wasn't really sure loved me and I knew I couldn't just tell indiscriminately others that he loved them mm. and that's a real problem when you're a pastor yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's a real problem so that, that's the thesis is is around those the theological biblical philosophical and practical reasons why uh, Calvinism can and I believe should be challenged and and even if it doesn't lead to someone leaving Calvinism as it did me I think that it can lead them to ask some pretty hard questions of their system and, and maybe be uh, happily inconsistent with it for the good of the kingdom. Mm. That's powerful. And, and you bring up a good point. I remember Dr. Habermas said in one of the classes, and we may have even had him together in the same class, I remember him saying something about along the lines, because he, he is... He, he's not a Calvinist either, and he said something along the lines that Calvinism works as long as you and your family are, are saved, but if you have a son or daughter that's not, th then it's not as pleasant if, if you think right. that uh, mm. they never had an opportunity or never have one an of the, opportunity. One of the, the, the quotes that I draw on uh, in the book is uh, from the, the account of John Piper with his son and a very capable teacher uh, in many ways a, a brilliant pastor theologian and and he openly um, from his pulpit talked about if God had determined that it was his will to damn one of his sons to just reprobate him then he would praise God for it and sadly and I, I don't know the current situation but one of his sons apostatized and mm -hmm. when i think about th that that approach i'm not talking about the outworking of a particular child's response to growing up in a pastor's home and what that might lead to but when i talk about the approach of my system trumps my fundamental concerns for my family uh, what I think we should hear is Paul saying, I would be a curse from Christ for the sake of Israel. Mm. Not, if it's not part of my system, it's just not part of my system. And I don't mean to caricature um, uh, Dr. Piper at all. Uh, I can't imagine how difficult that is. But um, the, one, of, one of my theological heroes, and I'm certainly no Roman Catholic, um, but is John Henry Newman. And John Henry Newman was raised in the evangelical Protestantism of uh, the United Kingdom of his day, Great Britain. And and uh, he, he would have considered himself early on to have been a, an evangelical, which by default in that context meant some kind of Calvinist. Of course, he eventually hmm. became Anglican and then a Catholic cardinal. But he said, um, this is the gentry paraphrase, uh, I, I took my Calvinism into my life and it just didn't work. Uh, now, I, I realize that's going to get the hackles up of so many to say that. But I think that Newman is on to something there. I, I think that there's a certain um, 
biblical truth expresses its, itself practically in a beautiful and aesthetic way that is life transforming. And when Newman said this didn't do that, he was no small mind saying that. That's right. He understood insides and outs of doctrinal development and so on. So. <laughs> And well, that, that's interesting, TJ, because um, I, when you said that, I was thinking of John Piper, and I was thinking about myself in in his shoes. I I I know I couldn't um, go a you know like you said though um, characterizing um, Piper. You know that's not what I'm here to do, but definitely for me in in my in my thinking i just can't see that being uh where i would give up <laughs> and, and and you know you touch on something curtis that's important in this whole discussion and and i i hope in my book this comes out clearly is there is a visceralness to theology it it it, it hits us where we live it's going to bring forth a gut reaction. Now, having mm. a strong visceral reaction to a theological view doesn't mean the view's wrong. But if the visceral reaction is such that it makes you think, what kind of God would do that? That's an issue. Now, my Calvinist friends will quickly come to Romans 9 and say, well, who are you, O man, to say to the, to the one who formed him? You have to go into that looking for personal <laughs> election instead of election to service. Uh, but there is a certain we. I am made in the image of God, and even in my fallenness, even before I was born again, those were intonations of the voice of the Spirit that would pick at me. I mean, we we don't believe just based on rational components. That's part of it. But there is an eff effective component. A passional reason has to come together, our heart and our mind. And many times, most of the time, from the pastorate level, people are going to believe based on that affective component, and then they'll come to understand a rational side of it. And so I, I think we, at our own peril, ignore those strong reactions to things that just don't have the ring of truth. And we may not be able to explain it. We may be functioning to talk about what Newman says with our illative sense, just that oughtness but that's real uh god talks that way and of course it's always confirmed with scripture but i had to learn when i was leaving calvinism stop ignoring the heartache this is causing you pay attention to that and see if there's a theological reason that that heartache is there mm -hmm. you know tj i was just i was just in a conversation with a friend of mine that that heartache feeling that we that you were just mentioning, I, I I related it to a beacon, a beacon that that's telling us something's not right and something is missing or something is warning us that that it's that's not normal. That that it's that it's a it's a, it's a beacon by God. It's the Holy Spirit sending out a beacon for us to to check what we're doing and and to look at where we're at. Where is God? Where are we? Yeah. What well, one of the accounts the, the the book is just peppered with personal stories because so much of this theological development happened in moments and, and one of them is I was a 
a sophomore in college way back in um, the late 80s. And I was involved with an intervarsity group that uh, came to my home uh, to do a, uh, a small group. I don't think they even called it back then. That, that shows my age. It was just a home Bible study. And for some reason, I still remember the genesis of this particular experience, but at the end of it, the, the, the intervarsity leader said, hey, I, I, I want to show you something. I said, that's great. And I had never, ever, this was the first time I had ever heard of Calvinism. He said, um, I'm going to show you why it is that the Bible actually teaches that God does not intend to save everyone, though he could, and he has created some um, as objects of his justice and some as objects of his mercy. And he started to walk me through these passages. And I remember I was sitting at my parents' dining room table because I was living at home then. And when he said it, I had this strange mixture of nausea and anger. I had already been preaching. I've been preaching for a number of years at that, at that time. Mm. And I said, I don't believe that is what those verses are trying to tell us. Mm. And very summarily, um, he said, well, it's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches Calvinism. And if you don't believe this, you don't believe the Bible. And I said, well, I know I believe the Bible, but I don't believe you. Now, I, oddly, <laughs> I later became a strong Calvinist. <laughs> but that was obviously the last time I hosted a home Bible study with InterVarsity, by the way. But uh, And I'm not saying all InterVarsity is like that, but that guy was. <laughs> but it hit me uh, hard. And and I did not necessarily have the, the uh, theological acumen, uh, the categories to process that uh, on, on any kind of substantive intellectual level. But I knew that something didn't sit right. Um, mm. And I knew if I was ever going to be a Calvinist, I was going to have to overcome that. Uh, and what I found happening to me, and I'm not saying that all Calvinists are this way, but Calvinism was very much a learning to dull my instincts and my senses for the sake of honoring a system. Mm. And people yeah. do that with lots of things, but that's what I was doing with Calvinism. Mm. So, what? Look, looking at this, and, and, and I don't know if you want, because you, you've kind of shared some of the things already, looking at perhaps maybe even the philosophical side or, or what, whatever the case may be, what are some of the reasons that led you to abandon Calvinism? So, uh, first, um, the... the even though I, in the in the book I talk about some of the practical dimensions last, one of them was a very practical dimension. So I'm in a counseling situation one time. This was when I was serving a church in Arkansas, uh, a very conservative Presbyterian church. And I had been asked to counsel uh, someone in the community, had maybe been raised in church, but they had long since disconnected, and their life was literally unraveling. Their wife had left them, losing their kids. And word got out that there was a pastoral counselor in town and so I got the referral and he came to see me and I'm I'm sitting uh, at, across a, a desk from him and I'm watching him just heave with grief and he's so broken and instinctively I remember I reached I'm reaching out my right hand toward him 
And as I'm, you know, you have these conversations in your mind as you're doing things and it's like you're watching yourself do something. It was one of those moments and I'm mm -hmm. reaching out and I'm getting ready to say, brother, no matter what, I want you to know God loves you and there is hope. And, and my hand is about halfway across to reach him. It was a small desk. And as I got halfway, my mind said, you can't say that for sure because you do not know if he is elect and you're getting ready to talk to him about saving love. You're not talking about some kind of general grace. And I withdrew my hand really quickly. And of course you can imagine the odd feeling that that created in the whole room. And then to my shame, because he obviously noticed it, he says, everything arrives like, oh, it's just an old shoulder injury. And I'm thinking it wasn't a shoulder injury. I, my theology won't let me do something that I think was instinctively good. And that set in motion a series of questions. I started asking, take the, take the biblical and theological component of this off the table. Because every person who holds strongly to any approach to this will have a biblical and theological argument. I started saying, practically, can I function as a in a community where pastoral counsel is needed? And will this system allow me to do it? And then that led me to ask this question do I have a philosophical problem with God? If I really believe that, that ha theos agape esteem, God is love, and if I really believe that fundamentally goodness is goodness, if it means loving goodness, wanting the best for the other, am I really able philosophically to say the God that I see enshrined in the doctrinal formulations and, the, and the, the, the lingo of Calvinism, is that God good and loving in the, in the ordinary sense of those terms? Uh, is he? Or have I inadvertently brought a bad God in the back door? And I talk about that in mm. one of my chapters. And, and so at that point, I began to wrestle philosophically, and quite frankly, in my learning, I had, I had a good bit of theological and biblical training, but I had never really spent a lot of time uh, focusing on philosophy that eventually led me to go on and do some graduate work in philosophy. But at that point, I thought, I need to, to look at this not from a, a purely biblical or theological perspective, but who can I look at that will help me think about this philosophically? And I came across uh, a book by Jerry Walls and... Um, uh, last name of the other author is Don Gell, um, Why I'm Not a Calvinist. And it was, it was a very well-done philosophical challenge to the fundamental ideas. And so I went from that practical, I, how can I pastor doing this? And I was starting to have some own, my own emotional trauma, and I'll, I'll touch on that in just a minute, to it, it, I've got a philosophical issue. Well, once I realized that there might be a philosophical issue here, and I think that, that it is so true, what's always been said, that philosophy is the handmaiden of theology, and if the handmaiden is telling the mistress something's out of sorts, the mistress needs to look. <laughs> and so then I said, well, well, what if I go to the biblical texts and the theological formations that derive from them. And I don't assume my system. Is there a palatable, even defensible, and could it even be historical way that these things have been approached? 
And that's when I started seeing that I had a, a good biblical warrant to to step away. And then the theological formation happened at the end. One thing that's important to, to remember is, so Calvinism, until you get to about the early 80s, the bread and butter theology of most American Christianity is is some variation of evangelical Arminianism. And with the rise of Dr. R.C. Sproul's ministry, and he had a huge influence in my life. I met him a number of times. Um, I owned every book. I went to. I, I spent a lot of money on Sproul stuff. But with the advent of Sproul and, and some others, Calvinism saw a resurgence in the late 80s and early 90s. That was right when I got into the heart of it. Well, what happened hmm. is the, the thinking non-Calvinist took a while to respond. It was probably a 10-year window. And so, as I'm as I'm drawn into Calvinism, Walls's book had not been written. Others that were challenging it were not there. So I thought, well, this has to be it because I know it's not just a simple answer that I've read here. And it wasn't until about ten years after I had gone into Calvinism that there started to be substantive responses, both philosophically, theologically, um, that that were mainstreamed. They may have been there, but that were mainstreamed. And so. When I was ready to ask the question, the resources were, and ironically, <laughs> probably the biggest turning point uh, for me biblically and theologically, because it went personal, philosophical, then it was biblical, theological, is uh, I, I, every church I've ever served since the early, late 80s, early 90s, I've also taught martial arts as an extension of the ministry. It's just something I do. So I'm down in Arkansas. <laughs> I got... <laughs> Uh, this church was, was a little church, it was a house converted to a church, and then my office was one of those portable buildings. And so I, w- I was in my office one day, and I hear this knock at the door. I hadn't been in town six months, and I, I opened the door, no people, you know, I just opened the door, and there stands this, uh, uh, my recollection is he was 10 feet tall, I think his name's Mike, I think Mike was maybe 6'2", six, 6'3", six, big guy, and he looked at me. And, and uh, he had the bearing of a military person. I later found out he was a former recon Marine. And he said, are you that preacher that preaches, that teaches uh, Kung Fu? <laughs> I said, I am. And then he leaned Everybody in loves Kung Fu said, fighting. Everybody, everybody. <laughs> and he leaned in and he said, do I have to become a Calvinist to study Kung Fu with you? And I said, what? He said, well, I'm a free will Baptist. And he said, I'm not a Calvinist. He said, I want to learn Kung Fu, but I don't want to learn Calvinism. Will you teach me? And I said, of course I'll teach you. And we became great friends. He's a friend to this day, um, just a dear brother. But through the influence of Mike, uh, when he, uh, we would meet for coffee and lunch regularly, and I began to tell him, listen, I, I've got a problem here. I'm in a Presbyterian church, and I'm not sure that I can do this any longer. He said, let me give you some resources. And he had studied uh, under a couple of professors down at what used to be called Free Will Baptist Bible College in Nashville, now has a new name. And he said, you need to read Robert Piccarelli, and you need to le- read Leroy Four Lines. And so I said, get them. So I got them, and, 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 and they, are, they are biblical and systematic theologians. And they were very helpful and very, they're very charitable and very kind. And I remember the day that I was actually getting ready to pull out of the drive from the the home there in Arkansas where I had served because I had I resigned that pastor because I knew that I, I could no longer in good conscience affirm the things that they wanted me to affirm. And I was not going to try to work some revolution from the inside out. It wouldn't have happened and that would have been wrong. They are who they are. And so Mike is there loading me up 
And he said, uh, he, he always called me Soke, which is a, a teaching title in martial arts. He said, Soke, my wife told me this is my fault. I said, what are you talking about, Mike? He said, well, she reminded me that I'm the one that gave you these books, and now you're leaving. <laughs> I said, well, I, I don't blame you for anything. I'm grateful to you, but it, it was uh, some formative moments. So there, there was the practical, the philosophical, the biblical, and the theological. And then once I realized I'm there, then I just had to find a way to do it without causing disruption in the church, which yeah. I wish more Calvinists would do. <laughs> well, speaking of that, it's it's amazing. Um, I, I want to clarify something because uh, on our Facebook page, believe it or not, we're getting some emotional kickback, <laughs> to, and, and, as is expected. And I want to clarify uh, to, to our listeners that uh, TJ did not say anything bad about InterVarsity. Uh, he was no, saying no, 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 that no, no, no. that segment. So we want to clarify, and, and I'm I'm seeing some uh, again some emotions coming through some of the uh, comments. But it seemed like it a lot of times this happens, and this wasn't one of the questions, but just kind of a sidebar issue. Why is there such an emotional, visceral response uh, that many Calvinists, and quite frankly, many non-Calvinists, evoke? Uh, when you challenge their mindset yeah. in this issue. And, and for me, being a non-Calvinist, I've kind of seen it more from the Calvinist side, but I'm sure there are non-Calvinists that do the same. I want to be fair. Oh, terrible, it's, it's, it's absolutely it's, it's on both, both sides. sides. Um, I think it, it, from my vantage point, speaking to that, because I was, uh, I was just as committed to my Calvinism as I am to not being a Calvinist, although when I was a Calvinist, I was... I was much more belligerent about it. That's not necessarily the fault of the doctrine, but that's how I was. I, I, I was out for blood. And as I've reflected on that over the years, Brian, I think it, it, it's a handful of things. One, regardless of where you're at on this issue, you're talking about who God is, and, and that, mm. that, that matters. Mm -hmm. And you're also talking about what it means to talk about salvation. I mean, my book, Leaving Calvinism, Finding Grace, is not intended to poke a Calvinist in the chest, but I'm fully aware that many Calvinists, and I said this when I became one, I have found grace. Now I can talk about the doctrines of grace. Mm -hmm. Those are such personal matters, and many times what folks who, who see this as a dividing point, what they'll do is they will not hear the other person they will simply hear an objection. And, and, you know, as apologists, we always have to remember there's a questioner behind every question. Uh, we never talk to syllogisms. We talk to souls. I mean, we got to remember that. Uh, I know early on, one of the, the very influential Calvinists on me early on was R.C. Sproul's teacher, the late Dr. John Gerstner, uh, a brilliant theologian, church historian, uh, I never had the chance to meet him personally, but I, I read most everything he wrote. I, I listened to all of his audio, his video. And there was a time, based on the influence of John Gerstner, when I would say things in the pulpit like this, the Arminians are heretics. Arminianism is a heresy. And I'm not giving a brief for Arminianism, but I'm simply saying it was that black and white across the camps and because of that, that's almost why, I'll rephrase that, that's almost why this had to be a personal, self-reflective journey for me because 
folks on both sides of this issue that were concerned about me were as dogmatic as they could be. And quite frankly, that wasn't helping me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's why, again, I start the book saying, listen, I'm not looking for a fight. I, I care about these things. I, I've, I've been around them a while, but I'm not looking for a fight. And, and if, if you read this and think I'm wrong, that's okay. I'm still going to call you my brother. I don't know that you'll call me your brother, but I will call you my brother. And, and I got to say real quickly that this is one of the benefits. I think, you know, looking at my path, this had some ups and downs. And TJ and Curtis, you both know about it, um, some of the struggles I've had the past several years. But, you know, one of the blessings I've seen come out of this experience that God led, allowed me to take clinical pastoral education. And even as we're getting ready to close that up, that chapter up, graduation for that is coming up next week. Graduation for the PhD coming a week after. May is just going to be a milestone month. I mean, God just orchestrated it all together that way. But one of the things, and in fact, even one of the people in the class even said, you know, Brian, you really needed this, didn't you? I said, yeah, I did, probably more than anyone else. But one of the things that I've really learned this not only impacted me in pastoral care, but it's also impacted me as a as a theologian and as an apologist is the importance of active listening, the importance of really listening to what another person is saying without forming judgments. Listen to what the person says and then formulate your your uh, conclusions or or whether you agree or disagree, but really hear what that person is saying and try to understand what they're saying. And we don't have enough of that in today's culture. Yeah, I I agree. And and although it happened to me post-departure from Calvinism, clinical pastoral education was a huge part of my formation um, and helping me soften. It's not that I don't have convictions. I do. But I also recognize that you don't have to have my convictions to receive genuine love, empathy, an open ear from me and by and large you know what if we're talking that way we can learn some of my best uh, friends some of my colleagues in in the adjunct work I do uh, they're committed Calvinists I'm okay with that and they're okay with me Uh, we're not making it the issue but my journey is important just as theirs is and and uh, we'll be talking through these things until you know the Lord returns Absolutely. Yeah. By, by the way, I want to touch back on what you said, Brian. Yeah, please. <laughs> I have no axe to grind with InterVarsity. I'm simply telling that was the people. <laughs> that, that's who was in my office. And I don't pretend that they were teaching what InterVarsity was saying, but that is where the conversation went, and it was jarring. So. TJ, one one question I had was was as you were talking, the thought came to my mind. You know, the the reply, if somebody falls away, um, if somebody rejects Christ or falls away from Christianity, um, there's it seems like um, you have to reside to the the scripture verse that they were not of us or from us, but yet in in various other scriptures tells us you know to to seek and and to find that and get that brother back and if we get him back 
then then we have uh, won him to the world, won him back to us, you know. Yeah. Uh, so Calvinism is a spectrum. Um, a lot of the folks that are the most uh, vocal uh, will find themselves more along the lines of uh, what I would call a five-point Reformed Baptist approach. And I, that was part of my journey. But Calvinism itself is much broader Um the whole system of, of covenantal theology, and not all covenantal theologians are Calvinists, but that, and having said that it's broad, what you find within those circles is different degrees of emphasis placed on what, how do we understand the perseverance and apostasy? Um, and you'll have some, and this, this is how I was, um, that are really tied to the tulip either stands or falls, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. It stands or falls as a whole. And the way they'll explain perseverance of the saints is so closely tied to unconditional election that it, it, it in effect, and I don't think this is their intention, but this is what the language does, it dehumanizes the convert. But that is not generally the tenor of more broadly nuanced uh, Calvinism uh, and, and within Calvinism even 15 or so years ago it was a major shift with what is called the federal vision and more of a reform Catholicism and a lot of my teachers come from that um, Peter Lightheart, James Jordan Auburn Avenue I'm not in that camp but they'll talk about apostasy in language that makes more conservative high confessional Calvinism very very uncomfortable so there's really it would be a mistake I think to say there's a monolithic understanding of that um, and historically even Arminius would have been considered within the Reformed tradition just a questioning Calvinist mm -hmm. it's what happened after him that that has associated his name with either fame or infamy um, but now, back to your point, let's let's be honest about one thing, and I'm not assuming we've been dishonest about anything up to this point, but let's be honest yeah, yeah, about might, one I thing. might ought to have an extra clarifier there. We, yeah. We've not been honest, yeah. dishonest about anything. Yeah. <laughs> Calvinism, the, the, the guts of Calvinism live their lives out in the pews. That's where all theology lives its life out, in the pew. Theologians are to be servants of the church. There's not. There should not be a divide. I'm not saying there's not a place for the academy, but the academy better be serving the church. That's the only reason that there is theology, ultimately. Most people, workaday Christians, the, the heart and soul of the church, they are going to nuance in a very black and white way things, and they'll say if they, if they fell away, they were never elect, or... Um, if they fall away, it doesn't matter. They haven't really fallen away. There's so much subtlety that has to be talked out through that. But most of the time, Curtis, that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And then you have people who hear this, and then they spin off to that, and you end up with a lot of different explanations. Mm -hmm. I tell people all the time, if you want to engage Calvinism, read the Calvinists that were in scholarship and then ask how it went into the church. If you want to engage evangelical Arminianism, do the same thing. Always, <clears throat> always present their best argument. Straw men are not appropriate. <laughs> Jesus is not honored by a straw man. That's not bearing true witness. And then, regardless of how it may have gone in 10 different directions and got wonky or watered down, 
we can really only deal with, in, in, I think in any honest way, what was actually intended. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the idea with what was the original intent of the founders when you talk about mm -hmm. constitutional law. Uh, how it has been nuanced is, I'm not saying that doesn't matter, but what was said in the beginning, where did this ship em embark? And that's, that's, that's where, for me, uh, I started working through that. I, I, now I see it differently. And so that we no. keep our ship on course, let me, let, me, let me get us back on track here. Uh, how, how has this change uh, toward uh, non-Calvinism or, or you know, leaving Calvinism, how did uh, this impact your ministry and relationship with God? In, in substantive ways, in the book, um, I have a chapter entitled, Now What? And, it, and the, the book chronicles all the things that led me into it, out of it, and then I basically say, now what? And I outline what I call five sea changes. A sea change is a major change at sea. And uh, first of all, I, I answer differently now the question, what is love? Um, mm. uh, not only what does it mean to say that that I love someone, but what does it mean to say that God is love? And I, I uh, quoted the Greek earlier there from First John four eight, Hathias Agapestin. God is love. What does that mean? And and I have seen my understanding and my experience of God's love, and and consequently of grace, very differently. Um, there was a uh, there's an account uh, that's in the book where I had been in this long term witnessing relationship to a Taoist. Um, he was older than me, and he got associated with me through some shared interests. And we were having coffee one night, and he said, because he could just see that I was perplexed. And this was before I decided I was leaving Calvinism. He said, do you even believe anything you say? And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? He said, you don't believe God loves you, do you? And... I was overwhelmed with emotion in that moment, and I broke down, and I said, I'm not sure. Well, and I'm not saying that, that there aren't Calvinists who are mm -hmm. well settled on that issue, but for me, one of the biggest changes is how I understand God's love. I've come to understand what does it mean to, to teach, preach, and extend grace differently. Um, one of my favorite ways to think of it is I love the, the parable of the sower. He's throwing seed everywhere. He's not worried about running out. It's going everywhere. I mean, you can almost just see this guy. It's like, the seed's going everywhere. Now, some bears fruit and some doesn't. But one of the points in that parable is, there's a lot of seed being sown. What's that seed? Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's the grace of God being sown. It's changed that. I, I've understood freedom differently. Um I've understood that because we really are in the image of God, even though uh, sin certainly has affected our our, our uh, carrying of the Mago Day, I've understood freedom differently. Probably the biggest way that this has changed my my relationship with God and others is C.S. Lewis said, "You've never met a mere mortal, mm. and you've never met a mere mortal." He said, "You're you're dealing with people who are going to be." Uh, everlasting, splendorous people or immortal horrors. Because I really do believe that God, and I think the scriptures support it, theology, philosophically, practically, he really does truly love and desire the best for others and does want their salvation. 
it has helped me see the infinite dignity and worth of every person. Um, one of the one of the greatest passages that I saw transformed in my thinking as I left Calvinism was First Peter three fifteen and sixteen, which is you know the locus classicus of apologetics. But what really has stood out to me in that is you're giving an answer to everyone who yeah. asks. These are people, mm-hmm. and they're all image bearers. They all have infinite dignity and worth. And if they choose an eternal separation from God, that's not because they're not loved or that Jesus didn't act on their behalf. And so that, that has been a huge, huge change. And, you know, as I get older, I mean, I'm, I'm approaching mid-50s. Uh, this summer I'll celebrate my uh, my uh, 39th year in, in, in ministry and preaching. Congratulations. That's wonderful. I, thank you. Yeah, that's why I have no hair here and only gray beard here. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm about to catch well, up with you, brother. <laughs> come on. Hey, Curtis, you're wearing a hat to hide it all. I see what's going on. So, yeah, there it is. <laughs> but I have felt this increasing burden to find opportunities to be a Paul to a Timothy in terms of ministry mm. formation. I'm, I, I'm not Paul. I get that. But there is something that I have to spend the rest of my days until the Lord calls me home pouring into people. And I want it to be this amazing understanding of God, good, loving people, infinitely dignified and worthy, truly self-determining. And God has made, through his provenient grace, every step that needs to be made, anyone can come. And that will shape how you counsel, that will shape how you preach, that will shape how you do apologetics, that will shape how you look at yourself in the mirror. I want to share something really quickly with you, uh, TJ, about that. I had an opportunity, and of course, due to the circumstances, I can't share any personal details. Uh, but uh, I, I met uh, a uh, fairly young woman and had the opportunity, as I often do, to read uh, Romans chapter 8, especially verses 35 through 39, which talks about the unending love that God has for us and how nothing, not even death, angels, nothing else can separate us from that divine love that He has for us. And it haunts me to this day because that young woman who was raised in church, been to church several times, went through a lot of difficult things in life, she told me, I never knew God thought about me like that. I never even knew that passage was in the Bible. And that haunts me to this day because how many others are out there who don't realize the amazing incomparable love that God has for each and every person. Yeah, amen. Amen. So amen. You, you mentioned a biblical passage. Are there any, maybe just a just a handful of other passages, biblical passages that uh, stand out to you when, when you explore this issue? Yeah, uh, probably t- two, and these will be the gimmies in this discussion, but they're, they're significant. I, I have an entire chapter in the books that, that is titled, Yeah, All Those Other Calvinist Verses Are Still in My Bible, <laughs> where I talk about them. Um, Romans 9 through 11, uh, John, John Piper calls that the tiger you can't tame, and, and basically the implication is y- you may not be a Calvinist, 
but the only way you can stay a non-Calvinist is to take Romans 9 through 11 out of your Bible. Mm. And for a long time, I thought that I defended it. I I taught it as though it were speaking only of um, individual election. And and when I I approached Romans, I think through a a more biblically nuanced, uh, theologically developing view from Romans 1 until you get to 9, I realized I can I can very comfortably with no cognitive dissonance walk from Romans nine to ten to eleven and not come out a Calvinist, but come out mm-hmm. saying there is an election to service and it matters, and everyone that was either in uh, a, either in a position of of service where they would have been a vessel for honor or service where they would have been a vessel for dishonor, they all still on the individual soul level were loved by God and could have been saved. And then, of course, John 3.16, when I was a Calvinist, man, I loved to take that verse and make my point about Calvinism. Uh, For Mm -hmm. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I love to say this was such new language because the Jews would have been thinking they were the only group, and now Jesus is saying God has not just elected some Jews, he's also elected Gentiles. And when it talks about how he loves the world, it's not talking about all people indiscriminately. It's talking about all types of people. That verse now, I don't carry that baggage into it. Um, And I find that I can passionately preach John 3.16, not have to hedge, not, not wrestle with it, and maybe other Calvinists don't do this, but I did. I had a lot of equivocation in my mind. I knew when I said all, I meant one thing, and, and maybe Poss meant something else. It's given me the freedom to say, John 3.16 means exactly what you think it means, and there's a whole lot of other scriptures that support it. Those are probably the two main ones. Um, I, I will tell you that, that the first thing that I did once I realized that I have, was leaving Calvinism is I systematically went through every key verse that I stood on, and I asked myself this question, does this verse have to teach the Calvinism that I believe? And I wrestled, and, and I came away without exception. And I'll and, and maybe this will get some emotional response on Facebook. I'm not after it. <laughs> I don't think there's a single verse in Scripture that has to teach or wants to teach Calvinism. I realize my Calvinist brothers and sisters see that, but I'm not I'm not shying away from any verses. I've got all 66 books in my Bible too, and I think they consistently support this this view. <laughs> that was a fist bump mic drop. <laughs> that was a mic drop moment. And I, I want to yeah. say something really quickly. Uh, this is the cool thing about now that we're doing the show live. Uh, we we have some listeners from uh, India where now it is uh, we're recording this Thursday uh, evening here in the uh, continental United States uh, and it is actually Friday morning uh, there in India so we want to say hello to Evangelist Charles listening to us Philip Atkins uh, who is uh, listening to us here in North Carolina so welcome to the podcast uh, tonight my friends um, so. Uh, well, let me go ahead and ask this question, and I'll turn it over to Curtis before we ask our final one, just to kind of keep us on track. Where do you see the Calvinist-non-Calvinist debate these days, and do you see any 
trends going on. It personally, and, and, and I, I just give just what I've observed, it seems like there's almost a renaissance that's happening in the non-Calvinist movement because you have different varieties, and it's particularly uh, Leighton Flowers and the Provisionist movement is really uh, gaining a lot of traction uh, these days. But what, what do yeah. you observe, uh, TJ? What do, you, what do you see going on in this, uh, or the trends going on in the current debate? Yeah, I like the, the language you just used. I think there is a renaissance of, of uh, thoughtful, uh, charitable responses to th- that that rigorous Calvinism that, that has often been called the young, uh, restless, and reformed late 80s, early 90s period. Um, Leighton Flowers is a good one. Uh, John Peck's uh, Divine Theodicy of Love is a great example of that. Um, the, the work of uh, Dave Baggett and Jerry Walls has been Absolutely. instrumental in that. Very powerful. Um, I, I also see that at um, what I would call a higher academic level, not higher as in better, but higher as in it's academia, not, not ch- church-level ministry, th- there is a, a recognition that this is a dialogue point, not a dividing point. But I also see a trend down at at where we live in the church level that it tends to be either super divisive or people say it doesn't matter, and both of those answers are wrong. It does. It, it, division is not healthy. Jesus did not die to divide a body, and 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 these things do matter. Uh, they matter practically. One of the one of the things I wrestle with most as a Calvinist was doing evangelism, not because I, I didn't know how to do it, but because I saw it as merely a duty, because God had determined, and therefore I had to be part of the process, but I could, I had to, to, to gin up passion to do that. Now, other Calvinists may have never had that issue. I'm not, I'm not saying Whitfield struggled with that, but I did. Mm-hmm. And now I see that, that the impact of Calvinism on evangelism, the need for apologetics, can be detrimental. When I was at Liberty um, in a Ph.D. seminar with Dr. Habermas, I had a chance to go and sit in on a uh, an evening session with one of the campus groups, and they brought in a missionary from India. And there's this Q&A afterward. And, and this was a Ph.D.-level missionary, so he was teaching missiology and he was doing the work. And they said, what is the greatest challenge that you face on the field in, in India? And I, I was shocked when he said Calvinism. I was like, what? He said it has, and it. I'm not saying there's direct cause and effect. I think it could be argued that there is. He said the, the resurgence of Calvinism in certain places like India that he was talking about have drastically reduced evangelistic zeal. Um, now, that you, again, you can't say that because you're Calvinist, you don't evangelize. But you also have to say, well, where is it lesser? Where is it happening less? Um, yeah, it's it's a tough one. And even, you know, me putting this book out, I was talking to my wife about this earlier. <laughs> I said, I am going to have so many haters. And that's one of the reasons why I've delayed it, because I am I am not looking to fight. And I don't want to divide. And I will never divide over this with another, but there will be those who divide with me because that's where we're at right now. But that's okay. Mm-hmm. 
Curtis, any questions before we uh, ask our final final one? Just just in just in in scripture, you see a repetitive repetitive theme all the way through from from the beginning to the end that you see in there that I've often used, and it's a it's there, there's a re- repetitive statement that God is saying choose 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 today choose your path choose where you got to go when i was in a discussion with a person that i know choose where you got calvinism when he 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 really was didn't see that he really didn't see it the same way we did or i did and so how do i get how do I, you know, uh, continue a conversation with someone that doesn't see it that way? Yeah, that, that's a that's a any theological issue is is burdened by what presupposition do I bring to the text? And and th- there is an objective meaning in the text. It's a myth to think that we are objective going into any text. We we can't be. We're, we're by definition a subject. <laughs> but uh, when I when the non-Calvinist would approach me as a Calvinist, the, the ones that were charitable and savvy and long-suffering, they would say, okay, I realize that, that you you don't see any agreement here. Let's talk about what we do agree about. And over time, building bridges where there could be a bridge built hmm. led to conversations about, about tougher issues. Because everything is personal. I mean, it's relationally driven. Um, we don't talk about God as a construct. We talk about God as a being who has made himself known. And, and there's this this eminently personal dimension. And over time, I think, Curtis, talking, whatever the theological issue is, talking about where we might agree and building rapport so that when we want to talk about things we don't agree with, at least we, to go back to what Brian said, we hear each other. It's a huge step. TJ, we have a question, and this is so cool. I'm glad that people are, are, are logging in, listening to the live show. Uh, and so if people do that, you, they can interact with us uh, in ways that you can't do on, on the, you know, catching it later. But Kaylee Rao, we want to thank her. She's been with us from the very beginning. She's listened uh, all the way through the, uh, the podcast tonight. But she asked a, a very important question, and this is actually looking at it um, – or just I'm just going to ask the question as she writes it. How is ignoring the Great Commission justified in Calvinism? Well, first I would say Calvinists don't ignore the Great Commission. Uh, I, at least none that I've ever seen. Some of the the greatest evangelists in the in the Western Church, in particular, but not just the Western Church, have been motivated by Calvinism. Um, so, so I, I I wouldn't say that they ignore it. What I would say is they qualify it. Uh, within Calvinism, I've generally found two views. Uh, there are some who say that Great Commission was very specific only to the apostles, and it was speaking to the establishment of the church in the book of Acts, and that believers on the whole are not called to actively engage in the work of evangelism, except in nurturing covenant children. Mm. Now, those are those you tend to find that view within what would be called micro Presbyterian sects and others. Um, but the, the, the general approach has been this Jesus gave us a great commission, 
we have to obey the commission because not obeying the commission is sin. The commission is to go into the world and preach the gospel. We go into the world and preach the gospel knowing that in any given audience, it's likely that a number of the elect will be there. The only way the elect are going to come to Christ is through the ordained means of the gospel. God has not only ordained the end, their salvation, but he's ordained the means. And so we are in fulfilling the Great Commission, simply making ourselves a part of the means by which God brings in the elect. Now that's a very... Uh, it can be a very mechanical approach to evangelism. That's where I found myself. I'm doing this because this is how God gets what he's going to do done. I think uh, uh, maybe another way to think about the question is, what is the difference between how a Calvinist approaches the Great Commission and a non-Calvinist? And you're generally going to see different zealousness and zeal can be a measure of ignorance at times i know that you know but you're going to different see a different passion i mean if if i really believe that when i walk into a room every single person there is sought by god every single person every single person there is someone jesus died for every single person has been able by provenient grace to respond. My proclamation is going to be different than if I go in with a construct of the elect and the non-elect are probably mixed in here. I need to speak in such a way that the elect will hear. I know the non-elect are not going to hear anyway. You can explain all day why that won't be different. It's going to be different. Right. Absolutely. So th that's what I would say. Well, TJ, brother, it, we, wow, we, we have run out of time. It is hard to believe. This has been a fun podcast. We knew it was going to be. Uh, we've been we've been chomping at the bit to have you on, and you know we're, we're going to have to have you back really, really soon. Uh, in season wow, seven, we've that. got some deep stuff, and so we'll have to. Uh, uh, to, uh, to to get you back on some of the topics. Kaylee did respond. I want to want to say she says thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to answer my question. Makes sense. And so th Kaylee, thank you for your questions. And again, we want to encourage people. Log on. Log on to the live shows. We're here Thursday nights at eight o'clock p.m. Uh, Eastern time. You know, add or subtract according to your time zone, wherever you may be. Join <laughs> us, and you can ask questions, and we'll answer them. We just proved it. Uh, we, we proved it right now that we'll do this. So, Kaylee, again, thank you for your question, and thank you for being with us tonight. Last and final question of the evening. Uh, when can we expect uh, Leaving Calvinism, Finding Grace to be published? Oh, and by the way, you may want to say a word about this uh, new publishing company uh, that's publishing yeah, this book. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that lead-in. So uh, the book is uh, set to to be available uh, in print and um, through Kindle at the beginning of August. Uh, if it happens sooner, we'll all be surprised. But by then, um, and, and I'm delighted to say that that though Whippenstock was very gracious to extend a contract for this, and and another publisher did as well. Um, this is going to publish with Illative House, which is a new venture that I am delighted to be part of, uh, along with uh, my, my dear brother there, Dr. Brian Chilton. Um, and Illative House uh, is going to be publishing it. Uh, uh, and as I said, it should come out by the end of July. I turned, I turned 54 on July 17th, so my birthday present to myself is get this out there, then start <laughs> taking the beating over it. So there you go. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, well and, and I believe, unless you've changed your mind, I think uh, you had me slated to do the, uh, the the forward, I think, for it. So, so You absolutely are slated to do the forward. I can't so, wait uh, to, to see what – maybe they'll keep reading my book after they read your kind words, well, assuming they're going to be kind words. <laughs> well, well, brother, I'm just going to say we'll, we'll, we'll go down together. <laughs> amen, amen, amen. Brother is in arms. I think. <laughs> amen, that's right. Yeah. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, that was the, the, the great and wonderful DJ uh, We just get thankful, thank him for his time here with us. So, we're Dr. Christy. want to thank you for spending time together with us. and becomes a place to strengthen your faith, to strive to create a sphere of discussion, and become a reliable source of information for you. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. Until next, Brian, TJ, and I say, Soldier on, friends. Soldier on, amen. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast with Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. This podcast is an exclusive production of Bellator Christie Ministries and is protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect the opinions of Bellator Christie Ministries and its affiliates. We thank you for listening and hope you'll consider leaving a positive review. To see more from Bellator Christie Ministries, go to bellatorchristie.com. Have you ever had questions about heaven? Have you ever thought about what we'll do there? Will animals be found in heaven? Are NDEs real? Is heaven only going to include worshiping God through music? Or will we be able to engage in other activities? In my upcoming book, Conversations About Heaven, I reflected on the conversations I had about heaven with a woman who attended a former church I served as pastor. These conversations challenged her to see heaven in a new light. Heaven is a place where our our wildest imaginations will come true and the greatest of possibilities will be brought to actuality. Our conversations about heaven gave this woman peace and comfort that she did not have before. In my upcoming book, Conversations About Heaven, I record our conversations and go deeper into the issues, and it is my hope that conversations about heaven will give you the same peace that this saintly woman received. Look for my book, Conversations About Heaven, to hit bookstores very soon. If you enjoy the Bellator Christie podcast, why not join us for the live taping of the show? This show is recorded every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And to catch the live show, consider going over to youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. We hope to see you there.